What do you want to be when you grow up? To be asked that when you're 14 or 15 is like, oh, I don't know. I don't know who I am. Never mind who I want to be. You always have that question early on about, oh, you know, what do you do for work? And I said, oh, I work in government. And his answer was also nothing then. Hi, I'm Steve Duke, and this is the Two Rows Podcast. Today on the show, I have Chris Bohan. Chris is an Irish guy, and he's living here in Sydney, where I'm based as well. So we had the luxury of catching up in person, which is really nice for a change. He currently works for the New South Wales government in their Department of Education, where he helps bridge the gap between employers and young people who are coming out of education and looking to enter the workforce. And through this role, he has a really fascinating insight into the big trends that are happening in the world of work, both within young people who are coming out of education and entering the workforce, but also the needs of companies and of employers. And we talk about a lot of those trends on the show. Before all this, however, he studied as an engineer, which is how I originally know him. He had a few other jobs, including working in aviation finance, which is this really niche industry, but also super fascinating. And one that a lot of top achievers end up going to work in. On this episode, you will hear about what most people, including myself, get wrong about working in the public sector, why Chris finds so much energy and meaning from his work, the big trends that are causing young people to struggle when transitioning from school into work, Chris's advice for anybody who's moving country, and there's a lot of people who are moving country now, especially post-COVID, so that's really, hopefully a really helpful section of this podcast. What the hell aviation finance and aircraft leasing is? We nerded it out on this for potentially a bit too long, but I, I thought it was super interesting. And also the morning habit that Chris has been doing for four and a half years, it brings him a lot of joy. If you haven't listened to episode 17, the latest episode with Joe Williams, once you finish this one, go back and give it a whirl. Joe has lived a fascinating life. He's been a professional rugby player, champion boxer, an author. Now he's the founder of a mental health education and suicide prevention business. He's also just a really beautiful storyteller and he has some great lessons for us all on finding purpose in your life also if you want more content about how to find a job and a life that you love go and follow me on socials so on linkedin you can just get me on my personal account at steve duke and then on instagram you can follow the podcast account which is at who roads pod t-w-o R-O-A-D-S pod. But for now, I hope you enjoy my chat with Chris Bohan. Let's get into it. The first question that I ask everybody, you probably know what it is, but it's when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? So I think since I was about four, I was always convinced that I wanted to be a vet. And I was like, I had blinkers on when I was in school. Like that was all I wanted to do, um, which is kind of comforting in a way because you sort of you're absolutely sure about this decision that you've made. Um, so I kind of went through school knowing that that was what I wanted to do, and then when I was in transition year in TY, I did work experience, and I think I had one week of work experience with a horse vet and one week of work experience with a small animal vet, and. I still remember the first day of my work experience, I got out of the car and it was like basically on a farm and the vet was like, hey, come over here. Yeah, you're that guy. Come over here. And he was standing in a stable and he was doing like dentistry on a horse and dentistry on a horse is not pretty. And he 
got me to like he was like come in here and he was like stand there and he put the horse's chin up on my shoulder and he was like hold the horse's head still and got me to like basically put my hand in the horse's mouth and pull its tongue out to the side to like keep it out of the way (laughs) and I was like oh god this is not what I saw on tv and what I thought being a vet was gonna be do you think you're gonna be saving golden retrievers Uh, it's like yeah like you know yeah running around with golden retrievers outside the veterinary hospital that have gotten better like it's just so so far from that um and and it was actually good to have both because even within veterinary, like it's so different being that type of vet to being a vet that works with cats and dogs. So I was happy that I sort of got to do both. But kind of came to the end of that experience and I was like, okay, this is this is definitely not for me. And I, I can't really put my finger on what it was. Like I didn't really mind the, you know, the gory side of it. Didn't really mind, like I still like being around animals because that was, you know, that was what I kind of liked as a kid. But whatever about what it was, I was like, I just can't see myself doing this job mm. um and then it was kind of back to square one really do you still like animals you have a dog right yeah have a dog like him sometimes like him most of the time don't have a horse uh and it was always kind of you know and i think it's pretty good like solid advice for kids is to like you know kind of follow the stuff that you're interested in um and the other interest that i had was uh, airplanes so i was like right I've, I've kind of reeled out the animal side of things so let's think about the airplane side of things and um i think it you know you you have that conversation with your career the one conversation with your career advisor and she suggested she because i was good at math she suggested engineering and i sort of thought oh, okay like maybe i'll do you know maybe i'll do aeronautical engineering like i loved watching all the videos about you know making the a380 and those documentaries so um ended up doing engineering in ucd sort of thinking that i'd go down that aeronautical route eventually um and then i think it was maybe after my like first first year of college uh, or you know somewhere around those kind of early years i read a newspaper article about aircraft leasing and i'd never heard of this industry before and i you know did a bit of research did a bit of googling and again i suddenly had this clarity and you know made this decision i was like that's what i want to do and again kind of had blinkers on for the next four years of college until I finished and that was like the end goal was to get into the industry and I did yeah I was very lucky um so did uh, yeah there was one particular company that had a graduate program so I was like right, well that's kind of the it's kind of the easy way in um so yeah just kind of did the did the interview process when I was in my last year of college and then had a summer off and then started started working in that industry yeah so I want to come back to aircraft leasing because I think it's a wonderfully niche industry and that frankly i don't know much about um but i want to jump forward a bit to what you do now so how do you describe what you do now i work for the new south wales government so in australia we have a state government and a federal government and i work in the the state side of things um and i work in a, a part of the government that helps businesses in new south wales to build partnerships with schools and businesses tend to sort of come to us wanting to build those partnerships for one of two reasons. One of them is that they they want to sort of do that grassroots workforce attraction. So people coming through school are thinking about what I want to do when they finish. And these industries want to make sure that their industry is on the radar of these people. So, you know, getting them in front of groups of kids and helping them to talk about their careers. That's kind of one, one side of things. Uh, the other kind of type of organization that comes to us is organizations that want to, um, I guess, do the sort of more kind of social program. 
So, you know, it could be like under an ESG strategy and they want to equip young people with the skills and the knowledge that they need to kind of kickstart their careers. And these are all probably like pretty big businesses. It's uh, it's such a mix. Like it's everybody from, you know, a, a sole trader, like, you know, a mom and dad business that, you know, own, own a cafe all the way up to, you know, all the big sort of Fortune 500 tech companies. And so all sorts of businesses. And it really... A huge part of a huge part of my job is really, you know, speaking with the businesses and really trying to understand what their pain points are, why they've come to us in the first place, what they're trying to achieve, what success looks like, and then working backwards from there to see how we can help them. Gotcha. So what would like a typical day look like for you? So we have a team of of a team that are based all around New South Wales and they they work sort of locally with businesses to um, build these programs and build these initiatives to help them to create those school partnerships. Um, and I sit on the management team for the program. So my day is sort of split half between helping those people to helping my team to to do their job. And um, so, you know, that kind of, I guess, you know, day to day, just helping them out and whatever it is that they need. Um, and then the other part of my day is working directly with businesses um, speaking to them about what their challenges are and doing that sort of discovery type sessions with them and then either helping them myself directly or putting them in contact with people in my team um, to help them to, you know, whatever it is, you know, the goal that they want to achieve by connecting with us. And a huge part of this picture is also the school side of things because that's who they're trying to, you know, build the connections with. And so also do a lot of work with with teachers, with careers advisors in schools um, and helping understand what it is that the kids are looking for um, and what it is that we can sort of connect them in with in those businesses and and really it all sort of comes around to comes back to career planning and so helping young people to you know make good decisions about their careers is the end outcome of a lot of the work that say you or your team does like what's where does the rubber meet the road is it like workshops that these businesses hold with students in schools um are there other parts of like the end outcome from all the work that you guys are doing or like yeah where does the kind of stuff happen yeah, so it it could be something like a workshop. Um, it could be it could be taking a group of students into a workplace and doing an, an immersion day. It could be taking somebody from the work from a business into a school and doing talks. It could be building out a mentor program that happens over the course of a term. Um, it could be a program where you take. Uh, groups of girls in high school into um, industries that are traditionally male dominated and building a program that's specially for them um, it's, uh, it could also be trying to help people to get jobs so students coming up to the summertime um, trying to come up with initiatives that ultimately end up in them getting employed in these businesses as well so really really varied and again very much sort of depends on the business that's coming to us okay hold up one second I'm sorry to have to interrupt this episode, but I do want to remind you that if you want more content on how to find a job and a life that you love, you can find it on our socials. So on Instagram, go to Two Roads Pod, and on LinkedIn, just find my personal account called Steve Duke. And of course, these podcasts I release weekly where I interview people and that's extremely helpful for people to get inspiration and hear other people's stories and what how they did it and what they're going through. But I also release a ton of other content as well to help you both figure out what it is that you want to do and also how to then make that actually happen. So LinkedIn and Instagram and LinkedIn, 
Steve Duke, just my name. And then on Instagram, you can find us at Two Roads Pod. Gotcha. That makes total sense. And um, what strikes me about what you do is that it seems very tangible. Like cause all of those things, like they they're in the calendar. Like they happen on a certain date. People have to be in a certain place at a certain time. Yeah. Uh, do you like that element? of the work i'm coming from a place where like the work that i've done for the past say three years it's like everyone's remote like very little stuff actually happened in person at a location on a certain time on a certain date where people had to be there it was a very like you know ephemeral kind of yeah. type of work and oftentimes i would have craved having like doing something in person like i remember the one or two times that we had an event to go to or that we actually had like a physical shoot um, that we were, that we had to go to. Like, I love those because I was like, I spent so much of my life. It was just like Zoom calls, mm. right? Whereas like, this is just something tangible about the work yeah. that you're doing. Do you yeah. like that element or yeah. is it a, is it a, is it a grass is always greener and it's not actually that fun? <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that, that's one of the favorite parts of my job. Like I, the, the days where I, you know, go to one of these events or, you know, take part in one of the workshops, like I come away from those days and I'm absolutely full of energy. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's one of the great things about about sort of working in, in this team. And one of the great things about my team is I'll I'll chat to one of them at the end of the day and I'll say, you know, how was your day? And I've never worked in an organization where so many people say I had the best day and I have the best job in the world and I absolutely love what I do because they're creating these programs and they're creating these workshops and then you get to sit in a room and see young people's faces light up and you get to see them you know make decisions you get to see them get jobs and a lot of the people that we try and work with sort of on the school side of things um a lot of the times it's kids that don't normally get these opportunities. So these kids that are sort of in disadvantaged schools, um, we try and do a lot of work with um, Aboriginal communities as well. Um, and there's just so much impact that these interactions can have. Um, just by a young person meeting somebody from an industry that has never even entered their world before. And all of a sudden they have this little piece of information and that little kind of spark inside in them. And you just you just don't know where it can take them. But again it's just it's really easy to motivate people and it's really easy to motivate yourself i think when you work in a, in a job like that because there's a like you said it's there's an immediate outcome from it and you can see what it is um, and yeah i just feel super energized at the end of those days yeah absolutely mm. i think like when i hear you talk about this and like the people who are on your team and saying oh my god the best day ever and you know seeing the faces of kids light up i'm like of course that's a good job of course that's meaningful but most of us don't go and do stuff like that no most of us still get tempted into you know some job that's going to let us you know work from home and give us free lunch Mm. and comes with a bit of status or a better salary or whatever else like not that these jobs aren't well paid i'm sure they are but you know that's what we get attracted to i think especially earlier in our careers mm-hmm. um but all the evidence says that if you do something that you find meaningful and you get purpose from you're going to be happier yeah. like why do you think that we just can't get that into into our heads yeah yeah and, and it's a real it's a real privilege definitely um and you know sometimes like i think what i've realized is that like every job has shit bits to it and there's every job that has annoying bits to it but it's so different when you have to you know, you have to work longer hours, you have to do this thing that you really don't want to do when you know that at the end of the day, it's 
benefiting a young person and you know that there's a really good reason for it and it's not just because my boss has set this arbitrary deadline or we have this you know this um difficult stakeholder that i have to appease like there's a real and there's a real social positive social outcome from it as well so it's it's very easy to motivate yourself like i said and it's also very easy to motivate other people when that's what the that's what the outcome is it's it's such it's such a good question and i've been through that as well like you know i i probably had you worked in aviation finance. Like that's really- I worked in aviation finance. Like it's it's the polar opposite to, to what I do now. Um, and I and I've had experiences of I'll never forget. I met I met a person once. Um, just you know, uh, we were going away for a weekend, and, and somebody else like came came along. And you know, you always have that question early on about oh, you know, what do you do for work? And he's and I said oh, I work in government. And his answer was also nothing then. And. You know, I was like, God, you know, that just says a lot about your sort of prejudices that you have to to working in government. But and I think this was a particularly, you know, that was particularly everybody does not react like that by any means. But I definitely think there's a certain idea that people have about what it means to sort of work in this jobs. Um, But when you live it day to day and when you see the impact that you have on people's lives, I'm like, there's so much value and there's so much worth in this work and sure you know government bureaucracy is a real pain sometimes and it can be slow to change but i genuinely believe that everybody that i work with is really trying to have a positive impact on on other people's lives um and it's you know I, i think some people get their get their views on what it's like to work in sort of the civil service from like you know parks and rec or something like that um, and there's definitely elements of it that are like that, but I think New South Wales in particular is a you know super super progressive public service. Um, you know, a lot of people that if, if you live in Sydney, people have used service New South Wales. Um, like even that as an example of how the government has been able to you know digitize and streamline the interactions that people have with the government um, is you know streets ahead of I think lots of other countries and lots of other states. Yeah, it's amazing. Like it's so good. Yeah. Um, and I work with, you know, I work with really smart, really, really talented people as well. Um, so I think, yeah, a lot of the stereotypes that I even would have had, um, you know, sort of going into that sector have been have just so not been true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think I would be I definitely at times would have been guilty of having like those stereotypes as well. Mm. Um, but I think it's honestly, I think it's your, it, well, this is a bit kind of. It's not great for me to say it because I'm not working in the public sector, but like I do often think that um, not enough smart people or people in general are going to work in the public sector right now. And I think if you went back to like the 60s or 70s, I'm thinking more about America because that's like, I don't know, the culture that I'm aware of from the 60s and 70s. But like having a government job was actually like was was the like high status like yeah. job to have. Like if you're working in public service in like an agency or whatever else that was like the really cool job to have. Whereas like, it seems to have shifted a bit more, like whether, you know, it was finance and um, it still is obviously in certain industry or certain like countries and um, tech. And then in the last kind of 10, 15 yeah. years has came up as like the sexy new industry, but it seems like there's not enough, like really smart. I'm just, there are lots of smart people going into it, but I'm just like, I wish there was more mm-hmm. because if you look at like, all the big problems that we're going to have to solve, like a lot of them are going to come from government. And then like, you've got people sitting outside government giving out about it, Mm. but like not willing to go and actually work in it to actually change anything. Totally. And and I think, I think, you know, I think it's one of, 
it's one of the most important things that I think people have to do when they're thinking about, you know, if you're a 16 year old thinking about what you want to do in your career, if you're later in life is to like test your assumptions and speak to people that work in these industries. Cause like me, you wanted to be a vet, you know, I was so convinced that that was what I wanted to do. And then I spent 10 minutes being a vet and absolutely hated it. And every idea that I had in my head about what it meant to be a vet was just so not the experience that I had. Um, and I think that's the same. That's the same in, in in government. Like that's been my experience. Is it's 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 really different to what I expected. Um, and 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 like I think the public sector is is somewhere where you can build a really a really good career. And the it's not like you know the the you know the 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 pay and the benefits are also like pretty good you know um it's not like it's a, a sector where you're going to go in and you're, you're not going to earn any money and you're going to be struggling like it's absolutely not like that um and again i think i think you know in, in particular um new south wales government is a it's, a it's a really good place to work they have um it's a really good working culture um so and i think a lot of people sort of reach a i think a lot of people maybe when they first leave college and they enter the workplace and they, you know, they might sort of chase the, the status of a particular job or they might sort of chase the, the money of a particular job. I think for a lot of people, you sort of have to, you end up questioning that after a certain point. And then people sort of end up in this situation of, oh God, well, how do I sort of, what do I, you know, where, where do I go with this? Is this really what I want to do? And I think a lot of people sort of end up in these kind of, you know, quarter life crisis where they, um, they're in these jobs that they're, you know, not sure if that's what they want to do. hundred percent. I mean, ultimately that's kind of the premise of the whole, yeah. the whole yeah. podcast, right? Because I think, I think exactly that happens. Like I've just seen so many people like around our age, like my friends, people that I know, colleagues who, you know, came out of college, ticked all the boxes, super high achievers, went after the, the big job, got it nailed it did really well for like five six seven years and they kind of got everything and like don't get me wrong they're great lives but they're kind of like hmm looking around you know, is there a bit more to it yeah. than this like i kind of have everything i've got the nice holiday nice apartment nice car whatever else and mm. um, but like looking for a bit more i think that's exactly like you know why probably a lot of people listen to this podcast because they're going through that journey and trying to think what it is that they would mm. want to do and oftentimes i think that you know, it's a bit simplistic, but I think the answer is probably finding a job that you find more meaning from, that you get more like intrinsic motivation from, as opposed to like extrinsic motivation from like status or income or benefits yeah. or whatever else. Um, kind of a random question that pops into my head there, which is like, when you're say in um, New South Wales government, what's like the really cool area that everybody wants to work in? If you can think of any sort of cool area in, you know, in the, you know, in the work, you know, in the, in, in workplace in general, you know, you might think of, oh, I want, you know, emerging technologies or artificial intelligence or, um, you know, green technology. Um, government has probably tapped into every single one of those areas. So you can pretty much think of any of that sort of like really future thinking um, industries and there'll be a part of government that is tapped into it and that is working with, working with it. Um there's a part of the government called uh, in New South Wales called Investment New South Wales, and they work on investment attraction strategies. So helping other businesses to you know understand the benefits of um, setting up in Australia, um, helping tap into you know the sort of skills needs that say if you're a 
I don't know, a, a, a green tech company and you want to set up in Australia, they'll, you know, help you come up with um, ways to make sure that you can tap into the skilled workforce. So I think any sort of, you know, any of those kind of future focused industries, um, there's going to be ways that you can at least be close to it working in government. Yeah. And that's one of the other things like go- government is huge. I think I think the New South Wales government is probably the largest employer in the country when you take into account all of the, you know, teachers and healthcare staff hundreds of thousands yeah it's a huge employer um but again and that's again one of the things you know things you need to consider is um working in government is one thing but there's so many different things that you can do within government working in finance is one thing there's so many different things that you can do within finance so you think you need to just uh yeah it's it's one thing about understanding the sector but then it's another thing trying to understand the sort of jobs within that sector as well yeah, such a great point. Like, you do something that big, there's going to be so many different Some types of roles, departments, teams, yeah. doing all sorts of different stuff that you can explore. Um, so you obviously spend a lot of time working with employers, but also, like, young people who are, like, coming into the workforce. Mm. So you have a pretty good view in terms of, like, the trends that are happening there. So we talked about a little bit about this before, but, like, what are the trends that you're seeing, like, with with young people who are kind of coming out now and like looking for a job in the workforce? I, th- I think there's some, there's some things that probably have been the same forever. Um, I think if you ask, you know, me or you, what you wanted to be when you were coming out of school, like you don't really know a lot, you know, your view of the world is probably fairly small. Um, and I think that's the same for young people now. Like they just, um, unless it's something that their parents did or that, you know, somebody that's something that the careers advisor did, they're still really trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up and answer that question so i think fundamentally a lot of the sort of you know a lot of the stuff is has probably not changed a lot i think what probably has changed um and i think we probably still don't quite understand the impact that um covid had on young people um you know they're such kind of formative years when you're in your teenage years and kids were rather than you know having face-to-face human interactions learning those people's skills people were learning from behind a screen um and you know we all know for many of us that have worked from home it's really really hard to pay attention on zoom or on teams calls um, and we were sitting people in front of a screen for you know six hours a day and um, cameras off a lot of the time because you're not really allowed to sort of use cameras when you're when you're teaching online um so i think that has had a real impact on young people yeah it really does you know um and we've all been on those kind of zoom calls as well where you know if it's a you know the kind of online training that you do in work and there's one person talking and 30 people listening like we're all off doing other things and it's so easy to do that when you're sitting in front of a laptop so you know young people had two years of that essentially and i think that really has had an impact on um you know their motivations sort of how they're equipped to um to basically leave school and enter the workplace um like 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 from an education perspective or like socially or both really both i think particularly on the social skills side of things um you know you sort of read in the news a lot of the time now about uh um the teacher shortages and the issues that schools are having with teachers and um I think a part of the problem the teachers are having as well is that it's um, the social skills that the kids have are um, quite challenging. So there's a lot of sort of, you know, challenging behavior in the classrooms that teachers are trying to manage and teachers are just getting burnt out. Um, and on the other side of things, the, 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 the kids that are coming out of school are fundamentally different to what they were or what sort of kids were coming out of school were like a few couple of years ago. But 
on the workplace side of things, you know, workers or organizations are probably expecting a certain type of person coming into their workplace, just like the person that they had coming into their workplace five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and they're just fundamentally not. So the expectations of employers probably haven't quite caught up with how the people that are coming into their workplace have changed. Hmm. And is it that they're typically, you know, not as mature as the workers might have been five years ago because they missed this, these two years of socializing or you know what are the dimensions that employers are looking for you know that employers are kind of getting surprised by one of the ones that that i hear a lot is like the the work ethic like all young people just don't want to work these days like i think like i I hear that as well about people that are my age so it's hard it's it's hard to know like i'm only experiencing this for the first time in my life so it's hard to know if if every sort of generation goes goes through this change and if it's a constant sort of it's a constant thing um but that's certainly one that, that comes up a lot is kind of the, um, I guess, the, the, the capacity that young people have to just deal with work and to deal with the challenges of work. And work can be a really confronting place if you're coming straight out of school and you're going into, you know, I know, I know it's, it's, it's one thing if you're sort of going into a, a graduate program or a training program or something like that. But it's a whole other thing if you're coming out of school and you're working um, in a big car mechanic. Um, or you're working on a building site um, and you're sort of thrown into this world and you have to deal with adults and if you don't really you know that takes quite a lot of it t- takes quite a lot of sort of social skills and you know self-awareness to be able to deal with that and um, so I think there's a lot of uh, young people that are really kind of struggling with that transition into work. Um, when you, I, I don't know if this is something that you cover like in the work that you do but I'm very interested in how we can help kids make better career decisions at like the early stages, which is definitely like some of the stuff that you focus on. But one of the big things to me seems that like the more careers that we can make them aware of, the more jobs that they know are out there, the better that they can choose, you know, whether they want to go to university or not, if they do want to go to university, what do they study? Because they've got an idea of what job they might want to do in the future, rather than just being like, hey, you're good at maths, you should go and do engineering. Is there anything that you know you or your team or the broader kind of department does to help with that or is there any kind of like thinking around how do we make people aware of more jobs as than you know like doctor teacher nurse and whatever their parents do yeah 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 we um you know you come from a marketing background right so we what, what like when i'm sort of speaking to my team about how we put these programs together i try and use the the funnel that you use for marketing and sales and apply that to careers. So I think at the top of the funnel, there's the awareness and it's how do we come up with initiatives that help young people, just like you said, to generate awareness about industries, to get an awareness about the jobs within the, in the industry. And the critical bit is also to get an awareness about themselves. So to really try and understand what your strengths are um, what the kind of stuff is that gives you energy, what your passions are, what you want your life to look like. And um, so that's the first thing we always try and do when we come up with an initiative it's you know how do we just get them to know about this industry and that could be something as simple as bringing them on a tour of a workplace or um doing a speed networking session where they might meet 10 different employers at one time and 10 very different employers so that's the kind of that's the kind of top of the funnel and that's where most of our um that's sort of where you would have most of the students that are going through where we go from there then is we call it explore and experience so you've got this awareness now of cybersecurity as an industry and you kind of think that this is something that you're, you're you might be interested in then what we want to do is give you an opportunity to actually experience it and to test out 
whether your assumptions about that industry were true. And no different to me doing work experience as a vet and realizing that that wasn't for me. That's what we try and do with young people. So creating immersion days for them and, you know, sort of simple work experience opportunities. And I think work experience needs to be curated a little bit as well. I think a lot of people have probably had an experience of work experience where you're getting the coffees, you're doing the printing. So we really try and design it so you actually experience what it's like. Um, and there's a bit of work that organizations have to do to, you know, design something like that and to facilitate something. Um, so that's kind of the middle of the funnel. And then the bottom of the funnel is really the, we call it the pathways to pursue. So that's right now I've decided I want to work in security or cybersecurity. I think I'm sort of interested in the penetration side to penetration testing side of it um how do i get that job so what are my options do i have to go to university is there a direct entry out of school program is there a vocational education and training option can i get a job over the summer because i'm not finished school yet so everything that we try and do try and fit into that funnel and i think you sort of if you sort of follow that approach whether you're 16 or whether you're later on in life trying to make it a decision about your career I think you, you, you just end up sort of coming to the end of that funnel, so to speak, so much more informed about what you want to do with your career. And I think the issue that a lot of people face is that they start at the bottom of the funnel and they look at LinkedIn or you look at Seek and you're at the bottom of the funnel there because you're just looking at the end goal, which is the job. And I think you actually kind of need to separate yourself from that a little bit and just focus on starting at the start and, and just expanding your awareness. This sounds fantastic. It sounds really good. Like yes. I, I'm kind of like I wish, you know, I was exposed to this system like when I was going through mm. school because I don't think I got. I don't know if there's any sort. I'm sure there is some sort of equivalent piece of work that's going on around like three schools. Like there definitely is, but it doesn't seem like it cracked the code at least for me i don't think I'd, i don't feel like i was exposed to that much at all and i think it's it's hard when you have a lot of the time you have one careers advisor and hundreds of students so it's re, it's really and that's just that's just how that's just how it's always been you know in a lot of the cases and i think it's really hard if you are in a careers advisor position to be able to put these things together for students and that's really where we try and come in in our work is to um we design these programs and we offer them to the schools to take part in and we work with the careers advisors to find out where the interests of the students are um but like i i, I don't think you know certainly in my experience of school there wasn't enough time that i had doing that sort of exploration you know uh, so i was talking to my dad about this recently because he was a principal and vice principal for I don't know, 20 something years. Mm. And I was talking to him about this. I was like, how do we help? Like, what are we doing to help like kids yeah. like discover more careers, like figure out what they really want to do. And he made a good point, which is certainly true in Ireland, which is that in a school, the guidance, the career guidance person and the counselor mm. is actually the same person. And they're two completely different jobs yeah. because on one side, you're trying to understand what somebody's strengths are, what they enjoy and understand all the different career paths that are available to them and then help them like discover those and go down that funnel as you're talking about the other job as a counselor is like dealing with all of the shit that happens in kids lives in school which is like a completely different job and in schools we're just like oh yeah you can be the same person like go in and, and do the same it's like of course they can't and i think probably what realistically happens is most of these people are overworked and like the priority is going to come for like the counseling side because that's like the much more urgent problem like to deal with which is actually pretty yeah. fair is it different in new south wales like are they different roles in schools or are they also the same but you 
look to give more support on the career guidance side of things? It's 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 very different depending on the school. Um, so you you might have some schools where a careers advisor is only actually a careers advisor for two days a week, and they might be teaching English for the other three days a week. So there's a lot of sort of um, I think particularly because schools are so short staffed at the moment, there's a lot of sort of mixing of roles and responsibilities. So you'll absolutely have a careers advisor that might be super invested in careers, but just doesn't have the time to dedicate to it because they need to sort of direct their attention to other stuff. Um, and actually, one one um, careers advisor that I met last week or the week before, um, she made such a good point, which was that the question that's always asked and something that I said a couple of minutes ago is this question of what do you want to be when you grow up? And she says that she's actually, she's completely stopped using that over the last couple of years in her career. And the only question that she asks her students is where do you want to start? And I'm like, I love that. Like, that's such a good way to look at it because most of us probably never even heard of the jobs that we were in now when we were 16. Like, I couldn't tell you that I wanted to be a senior XYZ at Department of ABC at New South Wales government because I didn't even know that that job existed. And when we're in school, we just think that, you know, we're think of, you know, vet, lawyer, doctor, engineer, nurse, teacher. And I love that when you just flip it on your head and you say, where do you want to start with your career journey? And that might just be a super general degree that gives you, that leans into the strengths and the skills that you have. And that will probably change as you, you know, learn more about yourself, learn more about the world, learn more about that degree and get exposure to different careers throughout whatever it is, the education pathway that you go down. It takes the pressure off because it's it's this huge question that people like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Seems like like such an important decision that just has so much consequence and to have to make that one and to be asked that when you're 14 or 15 is like oh, i don't know like how am i meant i don't know who i am never mind who i want to be and and and, and when when i'm 21 31 yeah. 41 51 exactly. because like the chance of them doing the same thing at each of those ages is like incredibly low um and yeah every time i ask that question like almost one of the reasons i ask it is to in some way show that the person is never doing what they thought they would be doing no. with it like yeah. and it's rarely even close no and what I've and what I've also realized and like even just talking to friends about their career journeys is you can like and, and I like to sort of like I like to analyze things and I like to think things through and make a decision and I still do that but often it's the tiniest 10 seconds that completely changes the course of what you do and for me it was the fact that I read a newspaper article one day and heard about this this concept of aircraft leasing for other people it might be one conversation that they had at a careers expo or one conversation that they had with somebody so as much as we can really try and plan these things sometimes it's just about these little interactions that you have as you're living your life and that sort of light a spark and that really changed the direction of your career so you can really get I can certainly get caught up in trying to like overanalyze these things but when I sort of take a step back and realize that actually the things that have really changed the direction of my career and changed the direction of my life have just been things that happened totally by chance yeah so I completely agree because um I think a couple of episodes ago uh when I was the interviewee um for a change and I was being asked about all these different parts of my career and the decisions I made and I started looking back on it and realized that actually I hadn't planned this out at all. No. It was pure chance. I w- decided I wanted to go work at McKinsey. I even learned about McKinsey because I decided one day to go to the UCD careers fair and I liked the suits that the guys were wearing yeah. at the McKinsey stand and I'd been watching the TV show suits at the time and I was like, oh, they look pretty cool. That's what I want to do. And that's how I made the decision. Yeah. I joined Wayflower because I got a random email from a guy that I used to work at at McKinsey. Didn't plan that 
at all. But then the question comes up for me, right, is if so much of our career slash general life is down to these like small moments and luck and things that we can't plan for, how do you behave like knowing that? Because it seems also not a good idea to just be like, ah, I'm going to leave it all up to chance. So like, how do you balance those two facts? I I think, I think, um, I think one part of it is just, um, it's a, I guess, live your life in such a way that there's more of a chance of those things happening. Um, And that's kind of like living your life. And I kind of call it like an expansive way. So you're saying yes to opportunities. You're, you know, um, you're trying to open up your world a little bit. Um, That doesn't necessarily need to, you know, need to be moving to Australia, which is where we're coming from now. Um, But just, you know, just sort of talking to different people, being open to new ways of thinking and, um, you know, that's, that's where those sparks come from in my experience is just kind of saying yes to more things and just, you know, experiencing life and experiencing different elements of life. Um, but I also absolutely think that there's the only way that you can, um, that you can sort of grab a hold of those opportunities is if you do sort of do that work and have that foundation of skills and experience and, you know, your social skills that let you harness those opportunities. Um, so I think you still need to sort of consider that and sort of when you're thinking about your career, I think you still need to think about, um, you know, what what are the things that sort of might give me a head start? That might be an education, that might be work experience. Um, I think there's so much value in working in hospitality or, you know, I think I feel like every person in Australia works in McDonald's when they're a teenager. Um, those types of things as well just help you to build your social skills and they're the kind of things you know building those skill sets that will also yeah just help you to harness those opportunities when they come along yeah so i think you have to do both i think that's that's actually a great way of framing it um and to kind of both of those come back to like these two like cheesy reels that i keep seeing on instagram at the minute but which i actually love and the first one is about like expanding your surface area of luck, which is exactly like what you're saying. It's just like, okay, you can't decide when you're going to be lucky, but you can do things that make it more likely that luck will strike you. And then the second one is, I saw this one today, is so dumb, but it was like, um, you don't have to get ready if you stay ready. And like, maybe, maybe this is a bit of a reach to apply to you or you, you said it much better than this, but like, it's like, okay, well, yeah, like when luck does strike, like, are you in the position to actually take advantage of it? You know, it's just like, okay, if you get an email introduction out of the blue, or if you get um, invited to an interview for a job, like out of the blue. So, okay, you can't go, and develop like two years worth of skills between when you got that email and your interview. But if you've already developed it, then you're in a position where you can like take advantage of it. But when you're developing it, you may not have known you weren't developing these skills going up. I'm going to get an email in two years time and I'm going to be ready for that interview. And and I've been guilty of the, like looking at somebody's LinkedIn and I'm like, God, like how did, how did they manage to, like how do they manage to get to where they are now like they must have planned that from when they were in nappies you know and it's and, and i i catch myself thinking that way and thinking what did they decide the whole way through to know that they'd up end up as ceo of the world or whatever it is that this amazing job that they have is but like i think we all know that it's like you said it's really those 
it is obviously there's a lot of sort of hard work that goes into building those skills but a lot of it is just luck along the way 100 percent um so i said we go back to aircraft leasing at some point and i want to go there now because it's I, I honestly i don't really know what it is so you're gonna to have to tell me well what is aircraft leasing because i think it's actually a interesting industry um especially for anybody who's listening who's in dublin because that seems to be like the hub of it yeah. but like i'd love to know a little bit more about that industry and what it's what it's actually about yeah. it actually um and i think i have 60 percent of this story right so you'll get the gist of it but i think i think as far as i know the 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 origins of the industry were back when um back in the old sort of erlingus days um and tony ryan who is the guy that originally founded ryanair I was working in Aer Lingus and there was an old 747, which is a big airplane that used to take people on holidays from Ireland to wherever it was uh, during the summer. And there's obviously so much demand for travel during the summer, <clears throat> but less so in the winter. So they kind of had this, I guess, spare capacity for an aircraft in their off season. And what they decided to do was to lease that aircraft to an airline in another part of the world where there was more demand for aircraft at that particular time. So... The, air, the sort of the the industry was kind of I guess born in Ireland and has sort of grown up there and turned out to be just a really good sort of business model and obviously it's very different to that nowadays but I always compare it to um, if you had Starbucks for example there's loads of different Starbucks that are around a city Starbucks might own some of those um, cafes and some of them they might rent from another organization but it looks like every other starbucks and it's the same if you look at a fleet of aircraft in an airline some of them they might own and some of them they might lease and it's it's i guess it's just a decision depending on the strategy of the airline for how they want to you know how they want to i guess finance that port that fleet or that portfolio of aircraft um but when you're sitting on a plane you don't really know the difference it could be owned by the airline or it could be owned by a leasing company gotcha. okay so so they're, the leasing companies actually own Correct. some yeah. of the air. Do you have any idea for how many, like what percentage of um, aircraft are owned by like the airlines versus the leasing companies? So I think it's, I think it's, um, I think it's half of all of the air, like commercial aircraft in the world are leased and half of all of that business is done through Ireland. So 25% of all of the airplanes in the world are owned by Irish leasing companies. So it's a huge, and air, airplanes are expensive. Like you, you don't need to have a lot of them for it to be worth a lot of money. Um, so it's this huge business um, that obviously has a huge contribution to the Irish economy as well, just you know, because of the, the, the value of those assets that are owned. And when those assets are bought and sold, they're really big transactions that can have quite a big sort of impact on the, on the economy. So if you're an aircraft leasing company, your job is basically buy airplanes and rent them out, right? Uh, pretty much. All right. Pretty much. What makes you good at an air to be? What makes you a good aircraft leasing company? Like, is it that you're you know you're I'm, I'm making this like super simplistic, but like you're really good at getting a deal on like mm. buying them, or actually you've got a really high like utilization rate on like how good you are at actually like leasing these out or the price that you're getting for them or like you know what separates kind of the good ones from the like not so good ones because of the risk involved in, in buying an aircraft like if, if you buy if an aircraft leasing purchase company purchases an aircraft they're going to be immediately paying for paying the financing for that aircraft and it's going to be 
very expensive payments that they have to make. It could be anything from, you know, 50 to $150 million for, um, for a, a brand new aircraft. That's US dollars as well. Um, so unless that aircraft is being leased out, it's costing you money. And very similar to if you're a person that owns, a, um, if you're a landlord and you own a house and you're paying a mortgage on it, unless there's somebody actually living in it and using it and paying you rent, it's very expensive for you to having it sitting there empty. So I guess what I'm coming back to is um, it's very high risk business. Um, so if you're not a good aircraft leasing company, you're probably not going to be an aircraft leasing company in the first place. Like you have to be very good at this to be able to make it work at all and to even be able to convince people to give you the money to purchase those aircraft. Um, so I think, um, and, and, and the industry has grown a huge amount. You know, it's it's quite a young industry, um, but it has really grown a huge amount in, you know, over the last but basically since birth, it's just sort of continued to grow and grow and grow. And there's been new sort of players that have come into the market. Um, so there's probably, you know, when I worked in that industry, you'd sort of hear of the days gone by when it was, there was much less sort of competition and it was much easier to, to do those deals. Whereas now my sense of it is that um, there's a lot more sort of players at the table and a lot, you know, if, you, if you're if you're trying to get a deal with um, ABC Airlines, you're now having to compete with a number of different aircraft leasing companies that are all very sort of close in, in price point and the things that differentiate those deals is, is kind of less and less. And an aircraft is really worth nothing unless you have the documentation that goes along, like the maintenance records that go along with an aircraft. Unless you have that, the aircraft itself is, is pretty much useless because you have... Um, you have no sort of paperwork that allows you to fly it and that sort of... Um, that, that tells the regulatory authorities that this aircraft is, is, is safe to fly. Um, and that's one of the most expensive parts and one of the kind of riskiest parts of, of um, aviation is the maintenance costs of airplanes and making sure that whoever owns the airplane or whoever has the airplane um, has the money that they need to um, basically do its you know service that it needs to have every couple of years like a, like a car has to do because mm. um, it's super expensive to, for, for airlines to do that. Yeah, hundred percent. So, if you were working in this industry, so say you like you've you know come out of university, you like you've gone into this job, like what are what are you doing? Again, so, sort of like we were talking about government. There's there's so many different things that you can do within the industry. Um, I guess some of the sort of some of the sort of broad roles would be um, the sort of, sort of skill sets. Like you might there's a really important skill set is on the legal side of things. Um, there's very um, very complex contracts that cover an aircraft leasing transaction and there's usually lots of different people involved there's all sort of sort of tax structures so there's a real need for people with really solid legal skills to be able to manage that side of it um finance skills i think are another thing that's super important in that industry again the you know the financing side of it the the the, the, the forecasting of an individual aircraft and the finances coming in on that and um you know the forecasting of um, your sort of portfolio strategy as well is going to be is going to be really important. So you need people with a really solid, um, you know, set of financial skills. So a lot of people going into the industry will be chartered accountants. Um, the other probably big one as well is the commercial side of it. Um, so the people that have the, uh, you know, have the relationships with the airlines, build the relationships with the airlines, and ultimately are the ones that 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 do the do the the deals and place the aircraft with the airlines. Makes sense. How many? Um, aircraft would like a typical leasing company own. Uh, it could it could be anything. I think the biggest would have over a thousand. Some of the biggest players, and it's it's billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of airplanes. Um, and you might have some kind of small 
small ones that have just started up that might have four or five. But even four or five airplanes could be 200 million US dollars. Presumably they all buy these with debt, right? Uh, yeah, they'd have a different, they'd have, um, I guess much like any company, they'd have different ways of, of financing them. Some might be from the shareholders, some might be from debt. Um, they also release bonds as well. Um, and that's another really interesting part of that business as well. If you're somebody that's sort of interested in like treasury and funding, again, a huge part of this business is, is, is making decisions about how you finance the running of the business. Yeah, yeah. I can, now that you describe it more, I can see why airlines would like to not have to deal with this because mm-hmm. it's like incredibly capital intensive Fair. it's a lot of risk it's like actually very specialized to be able to understand mm. um what like the life of an aircraft might look like and the yeah. costs associated with that and if they're just like hey we can outsource this risk we'll pay you every month or every year or whatever mm-hmm. else it is um and we're happy to pay like a little bit of a premium on the cost for yeah. that and not have to worry about it and we'll just focus on yeah. you know the aircraft or wow. the the airline side of the and, and aviation is is like I always found it a really interesting industry, but it's um, there's this expression that everybody in the industry sort of you know you, you'd eventually hear it, but um, it's that the quickest way to become a millionaire is to start as a billionaire and buy an airline, because airlines traditionally don't haven't made money, and I think I can't remember what the I can't remember what year it was, but I think it was sort of the mid 2010s was the first time that the global aviation industry as a collective ever made money. And it was a combination of low interest rates and low fuel prices is what contributed to it. This is the first time that that industry ever made money. So it's not an industry that has a lot of spare cash to be able to go out and convince banks to give them give them money to buy aircraft. So this was why it was like a perfect opportunity for leasing companies to exist. Why don't airlines make money? But like it seems because I've heard this before, right? That yeah. like airlines are bad businesses. Like you know that story that you told, mm. and I'm like every time I fly, I'm like this is amazing yeah. the fact that you know I just came back from Ireland like a couple of weeks ago the fact that I can leave Ireland and like 24 hours later I like wake up in Australia it's incredible yeah it's incredible and, and I think I think we I think the consumer in the aviation space has probably has experienced the change to profitability from the consumer side and you know if, if you got on a plane 20 years ago if you got on an Aer Lingus flight for example you would have had as much bag as you want you would have had a meal you would have had you know probably tea and coffee um and all of that just i think probably just didn't really work as a business model and now when you fly everything is an additional cost there's a you know there's really strict weight restriction because every kilo on the plane costs money because it costs fuel to burn it um so i think we've probably been at the you know the, the consumers of the aviation in the aviation industry have probably really noticed the difference in flying over the last maybe 20 years as airlines have had to ultimately become profitable um and i know in australia like qantas is a qantas is um qantas is a funny one like it's such i've really i've never um australian people love or hate qantas and for some people it's almost like it's almost like their national flag this airline um but Qantas just gets absolutely dragged through the coals in the Australian press because, you know, they do so much sort of flight cancellations. They've outsourced their baggage and ground handling and, um, you know, they've paid massive salaries to their to their CEO, but they report huge profits. Um, so there's probably that's probably not really a good example of the right way to do it, maybe. Um, but they're an example of an industry, of an airline that's become super profitable. Yeah, I was um, thinking there when you were talking about the fact that 
you know, the consumer is probably borne the brunt of um, airlines trying to like search for profitability because I have this like notes, uh, um, notes doc like on my phone where I keep like dumb questions that like mm. come into my head and like ultimately I want to like figure out the answers to them and like write an essay about them or something. And one of them is like, why has air travel got consistently worse over the last 30 years? Because if you ever go back and you see these uh, videos from people like flying in like the 50s or the 60s, mm. they're basically like flying like first class yeah. citizens, but like that was normal. And that didn't make any money. <laughs> and, and historically as well, like airlines, and they still are like, you know, you saw it through COVID, airlines are propped up by governments because it, it's a, it's, it was, um, I guess it's like a status symbol for a country to have an airline. Like British Airways is 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 part of British culture. Qantas is part of Australian culture. So they're a lot of the, and a lot of the time they're 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 founded by the governments. You know, it's a really it's a really smart way for a country. You know, to 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 bring people into the country to 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 trade to do business. So it makes sense for governments to invest in these in these organisations. Um, but you know, as things have sort of moved to you know a more sort of private sector you know um public or sorry like um publicly traded uh airlines that's completely changed yeah did you like working in the industry yeah i loved it yeah i absolutely loved it um it was and there's a few things it was very um i love the pace of it um it was super fast paced um everything happened really quickly the organization itself was only maybe 150 people um so that's a nice size. Right, yeah. Enough to be able to get to know everybody, enough to be able that things could happen quickly if you needed them to, and enough that you could have <clears throat> 75% of the company on one floor of a building. Um, so I really enjoyed um, I really enjoyed sort of how quickly they did business and how quickly people moved. Um, and I worked with super, super, super smart people. Like I've just, I learned so much there. Like it was a really good sort of training ground for me coming out of college. Um, the other thing I really loved about <clears throat> I loved about working there was that um, it was like a real global international business. And um, so, throughout my day, I might be have a call with somebody from uh, you know Northern Africa. I might have a call with somebody from um, the Philippines, and then the next day I might be you know speaking to somebody from London. And I'm always really I love learning about people's cultures and I love meeting people that have come from different backgrounds to me and you know finding out how we're different finding out how we're similar and navigating that and it was a really interesting part of my job as well is is trying to navigate those those cultural differences that you would come across all the time um and I remember you know I remember one time working on a particular issue that had come up and one of the people on one of the sides was uh Dutch and on the other side, I was working with somebody who was from a Japanese company. And those are two super, very, very, very different cultures and different ways of operating. And I was kind of in the middle trying to mediate this issue. Um, and it's just, it's a really good way to learn how to how to communicate with different people and how to get buy-in from people who think completely different with from you. Um, and how to sort of, you know, how to make uh, those two sides kind of meet and, and, you know, come to whatever the agreement was. And again, like I had, I had such a good experience there. Like I really think I was really lucky to have worked there and had an offer to stay and kind of felt like everything was mapped out for me a little bit. And I think I just got cold feet and I was like, oh God, like I'm not sure. Like I can see there's this amazing opportunity and I can, I can see the next 10 years and what it's going to look like. And I was like, but I'm not sure that that's quite what I'm ready for yet. Um, and sort of when we, you know, talked about 
trying to live your life expansively I wasn't sure that I was like I had to still a little bit more expanding that I need to do um and I, I think I, I originally wanted to go to Canada and was kind of pretty sure that that was what I was going to do and was going to go to Vancouver and then again when you talk about those those tiny little moments there was a friend of mine that invited me to his going away party and I was like I didn't realize you were going away where are you going and he said he was moving to Sydney and he told me about this visa that I was able to get as an engineering graduate and Australia never even sort of it never was kind of on my radar before that and then I was like I gave him a call or chatted to him and he told me about it and I was like oh maybe I'll do that instead. So again, one of those little moments that completely changed the course of my life. That's smart. So that's obviously when you moved to Australia then, off the back of yeah. that. Um, how long have you been in Australia? About four and a half years. There's a lot of people who've been moving either to Australia or otherwise mm. over the last 12 months, like certainly like post COVID. Um, I've talked to a few people who've been moving here you know, who are looking for a job or trying to set up or whatever else. Like my, actually, my brother moved here at the start of this year. Um, so I've been reflecting on like, or forced into the position of like giving advice mm-hmm. to people who are coming over here. And um, what advice would you have for somebody who's like about to move country from somebody who's kind of four and a half years down the road mm-hmm. and now looking back on, on somebody who's at the start of that journey? I think, I think the one bit of advice that I would give to people is to think long-term. I think usually you sort of think short-term, probably the length of your visa. But I would tell people to really focus on making decisions in your first six months here that are setting yourself up for the long-term. And a lot of the time, that's the type of work that you do and the type of um, visa options that you're going to have from doing that work. So what might that look like practically? So I have friends that have worked in that work in that work in recruitment. I never worked in recruitment before, but um, you know, ended up working in that industry here. It's this huge, amazing industry to work in here. Um, but there's no pathway to permanent residency working in recruitment. And you have people that maybe have spent sort of three or four years in a job now realize that Australia is somewhere that they want to stay, but there's no real way for them to secure that sort of future in Australia outside of having to completely change their career and sort of you know restart that visa process again um, and it's something that I didn't think about when I came here at all like I was so naive and was convinced that I was like oh I'll find a job and I'll get sponsored and that'll be completely fine and and I had and, and I had to sort of you know complete had to navigate um all of that not sort of happening on day one which I thought was going to happen um so I think just from my own experience and I think a lot of people do sort of go through that of finding them in, in finding themselves in a position of wanting to stay but being really limited by their visa so that's the first thing that I would be always tell people to think about how can people find out how they can avoid those you know because for example I wouldn't have thought that recruiting would have been an industry where it's difficult to say get PR like how can people find out what industries are have good pathways and what industries don't there's um there's a couple there's a couple of pretty good websites that sort of list the list the types of roles that are eligible for permanent residency so i definitely tell people to do the thing that i didn't do before i moved over here and and look at those look at those uh, jobs um i think talking to um talking to migration agents like there's loads of them out there that would you know have a chat there's an amazing facebook group called irish around sydney and if you just post in that anything that you want to know about moving to sydney and um, people will people will respond and i think i think 
people are really willing to help other people that have gone through the move. Um, so don't be afraid to just put yourself out there, reach out to people and yeah, just ask questions. And what other advice would you have for people who've moved country? It can be to Australia or, you know, anywhere. Um, and this is probably advice for people that have been here a little bit longer. Um, but I, I feel like I'm at the point now and a few of my other friends are at the point where you sort of feel like there's a decision that you need to make. And the decision is really, do I stay or where, where do I want to settle long term? Um, and it's hard. Like it's, it's really, it's, you know, you, you, you've put the effort into building a life here. You have family at home, you know, there's kind of push and pull in, in, you know, two directions. Um, and the bit of advice that I would give is to reframe that decision that you feel that you have to make and think about how you can just give yourself options. And one of those options is your, um, permanent residency permanent residency doesn't have to mean that you stay in australia forever it just means you have the option to come back um the other option is a, a job or you know an industry that you can easily transfer to another country for me aircraft leasing really you know those opportunities are concentrated in ireland they're concentrated in parts of asia there, there's no opportunities in australia so i sort of experienced moving to another country and being really limited by my job opportunities and having to sort of rethink what I did with my career um, and you can sort of apply that to anything like even even if you decide you want to buy a house in Australia that doesn't have to mean that you live in Australia forever it just means you have a house here so again I, I think people sort of get caught up in that decision that they feel that they have to make and I would say don't worry too much about it because like you never know what's going to happen you never know what's going to happen in the next five years you might move home now and you might decide that you know when you're when you have kids and they grow up and they move to Australia, you might decide that that's the point that you want to move back, and you just never know where life is going to take you. But just by setting yourself up so that you have those options, I think that's the that's the way to sort of think about it. When you moved here, did you move here with a friend group? Uh, yes, yeah, I had a few friends that were here and a few followed me, and they're still they're still kind of the main some of the main people that I hang out with now, um, and there's real comfort in that. Like there's it's great having people that know you well and that you can, you know, you kind of don't have to, it's kind of like a, it's an easy way to meet people because you meet their friends, but I've also made loads of new friends as well. So, and I think it's nice to have, it's nice to have both. It's nice to have the people that have known you for four years and it's nice to have the people that have known you for 15. And the people that you've met here, have you, has that been largely like through work or have you kind of met those people and become friends with them? Uh, I think it's been... Um, and it's a funny thing about like if you I was at a friend's birthday the other day and it's such a random group of people that was in there and it, and the question always comes back to you you know how do you know how do you know this person and it's like oh we used to work together or oh went to the we're in the surf club together or you know I just met her through this friend and I think when you come to Australia and when you move to a new country it kind of feels like you're going back to primary school or going back to a new school and it's like really awkward at the start and you have to you have to do the whole like making friends thing but again it's it's such a good opportunity to, to to meet new people but i think you have to um you just really have to put yourself out there and you have to be open to the awkwardness of the first couple of months when you trying to make friends and it's it's crap sometimes um but that's just part of the process that you have to do you know and i when I first moved well actually when i first moved here for university back in like 2014 and if i look back at like the people who i was hanging out with then i was like I was never going to be friends with them, but I just needed somebody to hang out with like the first month or so that I was over here. And it was like, you know, through them, maybe I met somebody else and yeah. then I was like, okay, and then eventually become with them. But moving country is actually, 
it's it's a double-edged sword i think from a friend's perspective because on one hand it's this opportunity to meet new people and meet new people who you are friends with because you share values with Mm. not just you share like a history with Mm. um but then the hard thing is like you are starting oftentimes from scratch um and i think that can be that can be very challenging for some people and i think a lot of people can move here with like a friend group or if they know they're only going to be here for a few years then like maybe they're not that worried about it but like i do think it can be something that people don't talk about as much but like it can actually be tough to yeah to make because i think what i what i think i find is like um it can be, especially because like Sydney and, you know, if you live in Bondi, it's like a fairly social mm. space and there's enough Irish around that like you'll have casual friends like fairly easily, like people who you can go and have a, mm. you know, go to a party with or whatever else. But like, I think like what I've noticed is those really close friends that you have from home and mm. um, it's very easy to take them for granted and like building them up in a new country can take like a lot of time. And I think people underestimate that. And it, and it's a bit of, it's a bit of um, it's the difference between people that you do things with and people that you have a really close connection with. And it, it's hard to like it's hard to put people from one group to the other. And you need to uh, like you need to be a bit vulnerable, you know. And you need to kind of allow space for that to happen. Um, and I even had a friend the other day who was telling me that she she was at some party and there was someone that she spoke to for like five minutes, but she was like, I just really liked them and I really liked how I felt around them. So she like reached out to them afterwards on Instagram or got their number or something and was like, hey, do you want to just like go for a coffee? And she was like, I, I felt so awkward. And she was like, you know, it was like I was asking somebody on a date, but I actually just wanted to be their friend. And this person is in their 30s. And it's like, but now she's had this amazing friendship that she's got from from it. And the other person was you know kind of flattered by it i think a little bit um and it's it, making friends friends as an adult is is i think probably harder than when you're a kid because when you're a kid you're probably less awkward and you know it's kind of what you do um but i think and to your point as well you know i think the other thing is that like you said when you're an adult you kind of know who you are a little bit better and you know the type of people that you like to spend your time with and you know the type of people that you don't like to spend your time with so much and you can um you know, you can sort of, yeah, like look for those people. And that made me think of <laughs> this guy I met. I talked to him for like five minutes yeah. at like a friend's birthday party, like probably a year ago. And I was like, it's one of those moments where I was like, do we just become best friends? <laughs> but I never reached out to him. So like, he's like, I got like a Facebook friend request from him. Yeah. And I just like, I never reached out to him. And like, I actually should have, because yeah, um, I should have. It's not too late. Yeah, it's not. I'll, I'll go find him in my my facebook friends yeah. <laughs> i actually had a, a a friend of mine used um there's actually um so bumble the dating app has like a finding friends part of it and it's called bumble bff and a friend of mine had used it and she was like yeah like i met you know i met a few people on it, and it was great this is when i like first moved to sydney and i was like right okay i'm gonna try this and i and it that's like it's really weird because you're on basically a dating app trying to make friends but i was like fuck it you know i'll go and this guy seemed really nice i was like yeah you know let's just go hang out and have a coffee and we had a coffee and i was like there's just something off about this like he was really nice but i was like there's just something's off and then he messaged me on insta he followed me on instagram there and then and messaged me afterwards and i looked at his instagram and realized he was like a um like a multi-level marketing person 
in one of these like pyramid schemes that he was trying to recruit me. I think it was Herbalife or one of those, and he was trying to recruit me into it. So I'm like, you're gonna, you're gonna have, you're gonna have, you probably won't have that particular experience. But part of I think the part of the journey of trying to make friends as an adult is you're gonna have people that you're like actually definitely not going to be friends with them <laughs> so i'm not going to like plug herbalife or anything in this because i very much caught him off at the time <laughs> i have to give that man so much respect yeah. he's like he's on bumble bff yeah trying to run a herbalife pyramid yeah. scheme um okay i've got a couple more questions before yeah. we finish up um what do you do what are th- some things that you do outside of work that you you know, you get happiness from, that you get meaning from? I always like, I always like stress when people ask me this question because I'm like, I don't have like this really interesting hobby where I, you know, I love 19th century artwork or I do kite surfing or something interesting. Like I just don't. Um, but the things that I do actually love doing in my spare time, like I, I just love hanging out with my friends and I love, you know, my friends that follow me on Instagram give me shit for posting sunrise photos in the morning at Bronte Beach and it's the same thing every day. Um, but I just love being down there before work. I love going down there with my friends, having a swim, sitting around, having a coffee afterwards. Um, It's funny, I love seeing the same people down there every single day and people from all walks of life. Like the the four years that I've been here, I remember when I just moved here, I saw a dad that was down there, like a single dad that was down there with his newborn baby. And I go down there every day for a swim. And I've seen that girl grow up and she's now this like four and a half year old kid that goes down there every morning with her with her dad and there's there's um people that are you know there's elderly people that are down there that go swimming every morning that chat to you there's people that have passed away sadly during covid like from those groups there's influencers that are down there taking photos and i'm like i just get so much energy from being in that place and just seeing people from all different walks of life and sharing that with my friends who either go there every day with me. Um, so I still not into kite surfing, but I'm like, that's the thing. That's the thing that I love starting my day with. And it's, um, it's just such an amazing way to start your day. Like we, I was there, I was there the other day and I was sitting there, we'd gone for a swim and I was sitting down with two of my friends and there was like whales, we were having a coffee and there was whales breaching out in the distance. And I was thinking back to, when I lived in Dublin and I lived and worked in the city centre and my morning would be like walking along the Liffey in the rain. And I was like, it's just such a, it's just such a different start to my day. And it's just such a different life that I have over here. And that's a huge part of the pull. You know, when people talk about the push and pull of, you know, family in Australia, it's like the, the life that we have here is like, I, I feel so lucky and so privileged to be able to do that every day. Cause it's, it's so special. Yeah, it's true. I think that's a really underrated thing to do is to do something, whether it's going to the beach, but do the same thing every day at roughly mm. the same time, because there's, I basically go to the same coffee shop every morning. Um, but I sit down there for like half an hour or an hour, like read, write, whatever else it is. And it's so nice because mm. You know, the first week, maybe you see the same people, maybe you don't, whatever else. The second week, you start to recognize some people coming back or you start to recognize their dogs, whatever else. (laughs) You start going there for a few months. It's like, you know everybody. You know all the baristas. They know you. You can have a chat with them every morning. You can have a chat with the people who are coming in. You know all their dogs' names. And it's actually, it's, it's really nice. And it's like, I've talked about this before, but like, 
the idea of having like a third space, like somewhere outside your home, outside your work, where you can hang, you can meet people. Sure, like they're not your best friends. Like some of them, you actually might still even know their names, even though you know them really well. <laughs> uh, but you can just have a chat with them. And I think that's a really nice thing to do. And for you, that's obviously the beach. You've been doing it a lot longer than I've been going to the coffee shop. But like that sounds really cool. And the fact that you're seeing somebody, you've seen somebody grow from like a newborn yeah. kid to like four and a half. It's like... And, and, and this guy with his kid, I've never spoken to him. <laughs> But I was sitting at a restaurant with my partner one day and we were having dinner and he was sitting at the table next to us on a first date. And like my partner was sitting next to me and I was like, shh, shh, like I need to listen to their conversation because I need to make a decision about whether this person is good enough for him. Because I've never spoken to him, but I was like, but I've seen him raise his kid every day down at that beach. And I was like, she's not good enough for him. <laughs> I bet you're going to like jump into the conversation, like yeah, yeah. go to her. It's just like, Leave just so you know, yeah. this guy is a great dude. He's yeah. down there every morning with his kid going for a swim. Yeah. Like. Super, Chris, this is, I think, a really good place to leave it. Thanks so sure. much for coming on. I had a blast. We covered a fairly wide range of topics um, from, you know, morning routines to aircraft leasing to um, New South Wales government. So I really appreciate it. That's all right. Glad to do it. So I hope you enjoyed that chat that I just had with Chris. Um, I learned a lot from it. Certainly did. He's a super interesting guy. I think he's he's very thoughtful. Like you can see that he thinks a lot about the decisions that he's made and also about the advice that he would give to other people. If you want more content like this and you want to just stay up to date with when new episodes are being released, you can follow me on socials. So on Instagram, it's two roads pod. And then on LinkedIn, just get me on my personal profile, which is Steve Juke. Apart from that, I'll see you next week for episode 19 of the two roads pod. Come on, Lord, I'm a big, 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 big,